left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Do you think that here in the United States of America, we need more or less affordable housing? And most people say, yes, we need more. And then I'll ask, well, what's the most affordable detached housing? And it's mobile home parks. And I say, okay, well, so you agree there's a lot of demand for affordable housing. And then I'll say, well, do you realize that there is either no supply or negative supply? It's very challenging to get zoning approval to to build a new mobile home park. I believe you have very strong demand and you have zero or negative supply in mobile home parks. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as one hundred dollars or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Jeremy Roll, and you're listening to the Pass Investing from Left Field podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have David Shirky with us. He's an investor focused on operating companies in the manufacturing space, mobile home parks, high cash value, life insurance, and, and much more. He's also the leader of the Michigan Investor Group, which is a community dedicated to sharing investment knowledge and experience with others. David, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks a lot, Jim. It's great to be here. Yeah, you know, we were talking just a minute ago about the um, your group, Michigan Investor Group, and I was on the call this week, and I was really impressed. And, and you mentioned it was kind of heavy, heavily focused this time on the uh, on the mobile homes, but I was I was really interested that you know we're both kind of developing a community. When did it start? 
It started in July of 2018. That was our first meeting. Yeah, well, it's grown. It, it was, a, like I said, it was a great meeting. But backing up, can you, um, before we get too into it, can you talk a little bit about your journey, how you got started in real estate or interested in real estate, how you moved on to syndications, just kind of your overall story? Yeah, sure. I guess I'll just start off to say that um very blessed and very fortunate. I'm part of uh, a family that owns some manufacturing businesses here in Michigan. And basically, I had never even heard of a syndication or a PPM or this stuff or alternative investments until 2016. And um, basically, we got presented an opportunity to invest in another kind of Jackson, Michigan area manufacturing business. And the equity was raised via a private placement. And that was the first time I'd ever even heard of that. So we invested in that manufacturing business. And that's probably been one of our best investments so far. <laughs> Maybe that first experience uh, got us hooked. And then later that year, basically my father and I decided that we were going to hire a full-time professional CFO for our manufacturing business. And that kind of freed me up to then, because I, I was the CFO for three or four years. And that freed me up to go kind of just start looking to make investments for our family. Um, that's kind of how it started. And then I'm sure you can identify, you, you kind of get the ball rolling and you start learning about tax efficiency and cash flow and risk mitigation. And it just, it just naturally leads you, leads a lot of people towards um, some of the real estate plays. And so 2016, manufacturing business, PPM. And then went from there, I guess. You invested first in a uh, in a business, right? The, the, through the syndication. What? How did you get to real estate from, you know, manufacturing business syndication? Well, I think by being freed up from my day to day job, I just kind of had time, and so I started um, started listening to some podcasts and came across some um, real estate investing podcasts and. Just, you know, the ball just started rolling. And again, 2016, 17, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to say you can't invest in multifamily now because you definitely can. But in 2016, 17, um, I guess it, it was still like really, really, really a good time to get started in some multifamily deals. And so that's probably a natural place that people will get started. And I did too. And then, uh, and then eventually I learned about, I guess, some other niches. And one of those niches, is the uh, mobile home park space that I've become very, very much infatuated with. And that's by far the place where we've deployed the most equity and the most number of deals is in that space since 2017. Talk about mobile homes. What made you get into mobile homes? It's, it's very popular these days, it seems like. But what, what makes it stand apart from other investments? Well, to me, the simplest way that I look at it is I ask myself or I ask others, I say, do you think that here in the United States of America, we need more or less affordable housing? And most people say, yes, we need more. And then I'll ask, well, if for the people that want to have like detached, you know, housing, what's the most affordable, like detached housing? And it's mobile home parks. And I say, okay, well, so you agree there's a lot of demand for that living style of affordable housing. And then I'll say, well, do you realize that there's either no supply or negative supply of that housing type. And they usually look at me kind of funny. And then we talk about the fact that it's very challenging to get 
zoning approval to build a new mobile home park. And even if you can, it's economically, it still is kind of hard to make the numbers work. And a lot of mobile home parks are closed and converted to other uses. So I believe you have very strong demand and you have zero or negative supply. And that's kind of how I start the discussion. And how do you get over the stereotype or the stigma of mobile homes? They don't have a very good reputation overall, the, the park. So, and then they're certainly not how they're portrayed to be or how you think of them, right? They're, they're, some, they're nice places to live, some of them. So how, how do you get past that? Well, personally, I guess I just think about that everybody needs a place to live. You know, for some folks, you know, this is kind of where that, that ends up being. And so I guess that's how I get over it. I, I, I really don't want to invest in places where people are getting taken advantage of, you know, definitely wouldn't search that out or have that be a goal. But there are some folks who need pretty affordable place to live. And I, and this really is one of the last places that that exists in. And so I want to invest with operators and sponsors who are respectful and care about others. I guess that's how I would kind of answer that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So you're starting a, um, you're partnering with someone on a fund, right, for mobile homes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of a new thing. Um, and I'm sure you experienced this too, Jim. I guess I kind of uh, I kind of share with people what I'm doing. I share with my friends and colleagues about what I'm doing and working on and like and interested in. And so over time, that's what kind of led to the Michigan Investor Group, which we call MIG. It's just people were just really interested in what I was working on and learning. So I thought, well, let's have this group and we can I can bring in investment sponsors and they can share their their deals and people can invest if they want. And a lot of people have just asked me, like David, you know. I mean, I mean, they haven't necessarily said these words, but they basically have invested in a lot of things that I've referred to them. And uh, and people have just been, David, you know, if you just if you just tell us kind of what you like and what you believe in, um, we would want to tag along, follow along. And so one of my goals for 2021 was, okay, let's take this up to the next level. And let's, David, you know, let's see if you can get on on the general partner side or if you can be on the deal side of um, something you believe in. So yeah, there's this there's a mobile home and park and self storage fund that is uh, kind of led by a man I, I believe in, Mark Curry, and I'm I'm partnering with him to uh, introduce this investment offering to accredited investors. And this past Wednesday at our make meeting was kind of the announcement of that. I wanted all my friends and colleagues to know that okay, this isn't just educational tonight. I'm actually can financially benefit from if you choose to invest in this. And I wanted to make that clear. So no one thought I was trying to hide it or anything. Right. So how did you find the, um, the what was Mark? How did you find him? Well, back when I was doing my initial mobile home park research, uh, summer of 2018, Mark had put out content on LinkedIn, I believe it was, about investing in mobile home parks. You know, I was in my networking and research and learning mode and I contacted him and, and we kind of just started you know, he was kind enough to talk with me and share with me his experience since uh, he started investing in the space in 2012. So this is the summer of 2018 when I contacted him. And uh, I guess it's how you start any kind of friendship or professional relationship. You just start talking and and then we've kept in touch uh, over the years. I, I actually have not invested with him until um, this fund, actually. And then uh, he actually attended one of our Michigan Investor Group meetings. Because I had one of the mobile home park operators that I've invested with present, and Mark wasn't aware of that mobile home park group. 
And so kind of tables kind of turned. Um, he was using me for his initial due diligence on this operator. And I was able to share my whole story of meeting him and vetting him and investing with him. So it's kind of like the roles reversed. And then I shared that I was interested in uh, starting an investment fund that I, myself. And then that just kind of led to, let's just work on one together. Since Mark had already done this several times, he'd been through the legal and the accounting and the tax, and he'd been through all that. And so we just thought, well, maybe I can help and maybe I can learn some stuff. So you talked about the due diligence. How do you vet a sponsor? I guess, is, is it different in the mobile home space than, you know, a lot of us do multifamily or, or even self-storage, but is, is it different in this space to, to vet a sponsor and, and how, do, how do you do it? I don't think it's that different. No, I guess I normally, so let's say I hear about, um, you know, Joe Smith. I hear about Joe Smith. So somehow I hear him on a podcast or I hear him see me in an article or a friend refers me. I usually try to look into my network and see, I might look on social media or I might even email some of my contacts and just say, hey, have you ever heard of Joe Smith? And then hopefully someone has and they either give me, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down or whatever. And then if I get thumbs up, then um, I'll ask for an introduction if I do have a connection. If I don't, you know, I'll um, just call them and make an appointment. And then um, usually after a couple phone calls, ask if I can um, you look at some of their prior uh, performance. If they have a track record, I'll ask if I can look at some of their prior, um, prior deals that have been in life for a couple of years. And then um, depending on location, like I have actually just kind of gone and visited some of their assets, just kind of did a like a secret shopper, you know, kind of experience. But usually at, at this point, I mean, I, I, I guess I kind of have quite a few connections in the space. So usually somebody I know knows them and helps me kind of get that launching pad started. And then once, um, once I'm feeling fairly confident, I tend to go meet people. I mean, I really do. I, I tend to go meet people. So I've, I've traveled around the country a lot to meet with different um, mobile home park operators in Florida, in New York State in uh, Indiana and Ohio, um, some in Michigan, I've actually traveled and shook hands and spent time with them. I find that to be pretty valuable uh, as well. I love to ask similar questions in different ways and you just see if the stories corroborate and then love to ask like background questions and, and you know, why are you doing this questions and how did you get started questions? And you just, you just try to see if things make sense, right? I mean, I guess that's kind of a general process. And then I, I do do some stuff. I do do some background check stuff. I do do like um, look up LLCs and look up, you know, whose names are on the LLCs and how long they've been in existence and just trying to prove like longevity of someone's background. I haven't, I haven't run very many criminal background checks. I have run a couple. I haven't, I haven't used that as a default method, but, um, you know, and it's just, it's just always good to corroborate stories and connect dots, I guess you could say. And then, um, one of my kind of, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to act like I'm a mastermind or anything, but I try to say, okay, I'm doing my first investment with a new sponsor. Now I got to wait 12 months before I do another deal with them. I got to go through a whole, because, and sometimes that's really challenging because, you know, you're, you're feeling good and you're excited and they have another deal in three or four months. But I try to really do that 12 month process of after making the investment, wait 12 months until doing a second deal. And then after the second deal, if it's going well, do more and more. So I, I love that about the, the 12 months because I was talking to that in, in some people in our community. And I tend to find a new sponsor, decide, you know, vet them like, 
you do and decide that that I want to invest with them. And then I feel like I need to get in every deal they have over the next short period of time. And and I just now, we've been having some conversations that, hey, you know what? We should wait and see how it performs and maybe not just jump into the first few deals, but like you said, wait a while before you do the second deal. So while you're waiting those 12 months, what are you doing? How are you checking to see if the deal is any good? Because as you know, they're not selling it in a year, right? You, you, you don't really know how it's performing, do you? So I have my calendar system and um, I have a, okay, I'm not going to lie. I'm not as disciplined as I was in 2017, 18, when I was just getting started, because back then I think I was just, I mean, I, I kind of, I like having like, um, I like having charts and reminders. And, and I think maybe this is good or bad, but as you get experience, maybe you start using your gut a little more, but I still have a, I have a spreadsheet and every time I get into a new investment, I enter that investment in the spreadsheet. I put in all my assumptions, you know, here's the investment date, here's the investment amount, here's the expected cash flow, here's the expected IRR, here's the class it's in, here's low risk, high risk, tax efficient, you know, all these things. Because you're going to forget, you're going to forget all these things if you don't do it then. So after I get like the signed operating agreement back from the sponsor, I try to really diligently enter all this information into my tracking spreadsheet. And then I have a expected cash flow um, tab and an actual cash flow tab. And so I fill in the expected at that same time. And then I use my actual cash flow tab kind of like it's my quarterly check. Once a quarter, I'll go and look through all the rows and I'll say, okay, I expected a distribution in this quarter. And if I don't have anything in that I recorded, that'll prompt me to go just, just check on the operator. You know, send an email, say, hey, I haven't gotten the quarter report. And you might get zero cash flow. But at least you want to see a report that or an email that tells you the situation. So I use my my expected versus actual distributions tracking spreadsheet to remind me to check on each of my investments. And then what does that tell you? If they're paying according to projections, then you're more apt to invest with them than if they're not? Or is it the explanations you get in the email that are most important? It's more of the explanations. It's more of the uh, communications and whether it makes sense what I'm hearing or because it's a lot more than just the actual cash. Yeah, it's way more important. The explanation and the believability of the explanations and the prospects, the believability of the prospects that that they're describing is more important than the actual cash, especially in the first year. Right. I also try not to refer anyone to that sponsor until the year's up because, and that's hard too, because you want to help people out, but I've tried to really, if I do, I say, listen, I haven't had a year yet. I'm not really recommending them. If you want to check them out, check them out. But if if I've had a good year and a good two years, I, I would recommend people very strongly and uh, very often. <laughs> have you gone full cycle on any of these uh, mobile home parks? The mobile home parks have not. My first one was 2017, and that was a fund. And then 2018 through now, it's been about 15 single park you know, or specific syndications on a specific asset. I thought we were going to have one. I got a call from a sponsor early March 2020. And we were only 19 months in the deal. And he's like, David, good news. Don't tell anybody, but it looks like we're going to have a refi happening, you know, in April. Well, that was March 2020. <laughs> and right. then, you know, the pandemic kind of happened. And But the good news is the plan is that's going to happen in May or June of this year. So it'll still only be 30 months to have a full cash out refi, which, I mean, that's great. 
but it was it was an up because I'm kind of like the lead passive investor, I guess you could say on that deal. Like referred quite a bit of the equity to that deal, even though I wasn't part of the deal. I just kind of referred a bunch of the equity. So he was kind of giving me a heads up on on that, but it didn't it didn't come to fruition. Have had two cash out refis on other um, real estate investments. Both of them happened to be industrial. And those were primarily just because, well, I don't want to bore you, but one of them was because uh, we were able to buy the real estate in a way, we basically, we told the seller, we want the business, not the real estate. And they wanted to sell both. And so we were able to buy the business for a more market competitive price. But the real estate, we got it for a really, really, really good price. And so that was, um, that we didn't improve it or anything. It just, it just had, uh, it had a really good cap rate. So when you're getting into these deals, I, I kind of think of these as um, not just mobile homes, but any syndication as one of the least liquid investments you can make. And it takes so long to prove out. So I, I really like your system of kind of a year to check. So after a year, then you feel pretty confident if they're performing as they say they would or and or they're communicating as they say what they would, then you feel pretty comfortable that they're legit and then you're willing to commit additional funds and maybe even more funds to, to subsequent deals with them. Yeah. And if you don't mind, maybe on some more color. So again, one of my first five or six passive investments was a mobile home park. And what I realized was I invested with a couple of guys who were fundraisers, but they weren't mobile home park pros. And I didn't, I didn't have that in my filter, right? And, and that property is cash flowing like crazy. It's going, it's doing great, but it's like, I don't want to invest more with them in mobile home parks because they're not, they're not focused on the space. And I just didn't have that as a filter, right? It looked like a good pro forma and it looked like a decent market. And these guys had it under a good price. And, but I just, now I had a filter, like, is the person or the group I'm investing with, is this their career? Is their reputation on the line? Is this their career? Are they building for the future in this space? I, I just didn't, you know, you don't. I didn't have that as a filter back in 2018. Yeah, that's key. And that's, you know, we're kind of on similar paths because I'm learning the same thing. You listen to some people on podcasts and, and or in other places at events, and you think, wow, they really know what they're doing. And it might be that they are marketers more than operators. And that doesn't mean their deals are bad or they're not going to learn on as they go. But I, I agree with you. You want to be finding the quality operators those people might not even need to do any marketing, right? For sure, for sure. So that was a big aha moment for me when I realized, oh, they're a syndicator. They're not a operator in the space. And that was a big aha moment for me. And since then, you know, you see deals where there's like three or four general partners on it and you don't understand like, okay, who is critical to this? Who is critical to raise the equity? Who's critical to get the debt? Who's critical to operate it? Who's critical to asset management? I want to know who's, I want to invest directly with the people who were critical in the operations. Yeah. That's what I'm, but again, I just didn't, I wasn't aware of this stuff until you get in some deals. Right. And you need to learn to ask those questions, right? Because you might not even know there's multiple general partners unless you're asking. And I think part of what has helped me, and I think you're kind of in a similar situation, is you built a community, you built a network. And so you can learn from each other and learn these things and and then share that as you go. Is that is that part of your process with your network and your community? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. And I, I'd say it's I'd say one of the best parts of 
again, one of the best parts of um, getting involved in these deals is if you can get to meet some of the other investors in the deals, because you already have like a really strong aligned interest. And it's just, I think it's just a great way to meet people. So like, you know, what, like if you invest in an oper- if you invest in a syndication and the operator sends you an appendix and it lists the, the other investors, the other limited partners, I think that is a great source of people to go say hello to and say, hey, guess what? We're co-investors in, in this deal. Maybe only one out of four of them is going to want to talk to you, but you have a going in strong alignment to, to become friends or to become peers. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. I know, I know when I first, and I talk about this a lot, but when I first found out or met someone that was in the same deal as I was, just a sense of relief that told me, okay, there's somebody else who I think is a smart guy who knows what he's doing. And he did the same, he invested in the same deal I did. It just gives you a sense of of confidence because this is, you know, I, I don't like when people call it alternative investments because they're the places you live. The alternative part is, not everyone else is doing it. So you ha- there's a lot to learn, right? Anyone can invest in the stock market and everyone's doing it. So it, it's easy. But this, the barriers to enter are a little bit higher for the investor. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy and it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. So changing gear a little bit, I want to, you said you invested in a fund and I think the new deal you're doing is also a fund. And there's been some talk in my community lately about state taxes, because if you're in a fund and they're investing in six different states, do you have to file six different tax returns? If you had to go through that, the state taxes with the, with the fund you invested in um, originally back in 2018? Yes. Yes. Um, I, I actually am not in very many funds. I'm only in two mobile home park funds with the, the ATM fund. Most of them, my investments have all been single asset deals. But yes, um, I have, you do get those 30 or 40 page K1 documents. And that's kind of a shock to the system when you first get it, because it's kind of scary, especially if your CPA doesn't 
hasn't really dealt with it yet, it can be even scarier. But yeah, I think that's something to consider is if you're going to invest with an operator who's going to buy several assets in a fund and they're not all in the same state, you're going to have to you're going to have many filings, many filing fees and a, and a bigger CPA fee and bigger CPA fee bill. And so have you found that? I mean, do you have any sense of what what the cost is to, you know, like investing in that fund, you have to deduct the costs from the returns of the fund. So does it still make sense to invest in a fund or do you ask a different question of the operator? How many states are you going to be investing in and which ones? Because if they're all in states that don't have income tax, then you're okay. But then yeah. it's usually not the case. So how do you get through that if you're in, in with your fund? How, do you talk to investors about that? You're Honestly, I haven't thought about being prepared to address that question to prospective investors in the fund I'm raising right now. So you're asking a real, you're helping me prepare and um, hopefully prepare a, a good response. And to be honest, I, it hasn't been one of the major things on my checklist because I just, it just, it hasn't been, but I think it should be. I think it should be, and I, but it hasn't been. Yeah. And it hasn't been for me either. And I'm invested in a couple of funds and it came up in, in our, um, on our left field investors forum, people were talking about it. And that's when it hit me. Like that's something I need to start yeah. analyzing because especially in the multifamily field, a lot more sponsors are shifting to fund models. And also if you're in the self-storage and mobile home, I think a lot more of those are funds naturally, maybe because some of the multi-home or mobile home parks are smaller and it just it's hard to do single asset deals as much. Is that is that why you're doing a fund for your uh, for your operation? I decided to get in this fund because I had okay. I personally and for for me personally and for the family office I manage, our family office, I'm seeking long-term holds. I'm seeking 10, 20, 30 year hold periods with operators who want to own these things cash flow them and refinance them several times in 20 or 30 years. That's my goal. But I've realized that a lot of my, I guess I'll say friends and colleagues, they don't, they want to have a three or five or seven year kind of time horizon. And so that's where the funds can be a little more conducive because inherently they have a time frame. And everyone, you know, the people that are buying the assets and managing them and the investors, they all are on the same page. Like, like, we're going to buy the first two years. We're going to operate for years through, you know, two, three, four, and five, and we're going to try to sell in year six and seven. And so that was one of the reasons that I I wanted to say, you know what, who, what is a mobile home park fund that I believe in and trust and want to get involved in, so that I can offer that to a lot of people who believe in the mobile home park space but don't want to have a perpetual whole time frame, like I do. Right, makes sense. That's one of the reasons that I want to have this for my for people that are following me. Your believe that I'm a half-wit. That's that's interesting. So again, um, moving off from mobile homes, we mentioned at the open that that you are, you focus on high high cash value life insurance. And I see more and more people talking about that in in our field of syndication investing. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, And do you use that to invest in syndications or is that a separate investment? Well, this is another one of my favorite topics. And again, people that know me get sick of me talking about it because <laughs> I look at high cash value life insurance as primarily a better performing savings account, a high interest rate savings account with death benefit as a benefit, <laughs> death, death benefit on the side. That's how I look at it. And I look at it as an emergency fund first and opportunity fund second. And so, yes, I am investing in syndications via policy loans 
from the life insurance companies that I have cash value built up with. Yes. So I, I consider that my opportunity fund to fund investments. And so you take a loan from the insurance company and you get the cash and then you invest it in a mobile home park or some other kind of deal. And then how do you pay that back? Do you pay that? Do you, do you just transfer every time you get a distribution, you pay it back or do you wait until it goes full cycle and pay it back? How does, how does that work a little bit, the mechanics of it? This is how I look at it. And I don't pay it back every month, but quarterly is kind of more of my, where I have my ticklers in my calendar to like, to plan on you know paying back the loans. I look at it as um, unless something goes wrong and, and my, my personal financial system is in disarray, everything goes to pay off policy loan. So like, for example, the ATM deals you and I are in, first three and a half, four years, everything goes back to the policy loan. And then years, you know, five, six, and seven, it's, I can do what I want with it. That's kind of how I look at it. That makes sense. So you do that for all of them. So any, any distribution you get, you're saving them up, you're putting them back into that loan. Once the loan is paid, paid off, then you can use it again. And then any other income you're getting from that investment just goes to the, to the bottom line or to a new investment or to living expenses or whatever. Yeah. And I think what happens is sometimes I sound like a commercial. I think what happens is when you've been involved in this for three or four years and you made your annual premium payments and you start getting comfortable with this cash value, it's real, it's real liquid funds. And so there's no fear in paying things back because if you need to get it, you just you call the company and they ACH me the cash again. But at first, that's it's just something that even though you read about it and you hear about it, I think it might be a couple of years until you're comfortable doing that. Yeah, I think it's awesome having policy loans outstanding because you know your money is going to perform at 5% if you pay it back. You just know it. Right. No, I, I agree. I, I have those policies as well. And I'm I haven't used them a whole lot, but I'm, you know, that that's on my list of things to do is to start they're using because what you're doing really is you're creating a second asset out of the same cash, right? Because your cash is earning in both places at the same time. So it really is a is a powerful tool. And can I give you one more example? Um, oh, please, yeah. Again, I, I'm managing my personal portfolio and I'm managing basically my parents' portfolio, the family office. And so my father has some policies that are no, these were not intended to be infinite banking concept policies, but they're 30 years old, whole life policies. We have an opportunity coming up here where we've made an offer on a mobile home park with one of our partners, our operating partners, but it's an all cash deal. So if, if we get this thing under contract and it goes through due diligence, we already have a plan. Us as the past investors, we're going to collateralize one of our, my, my father's long-term policies, get the cash, buy the park, and then we're going to have like a three or four month loan set up with the operator. And then they're going to go through the traditional bank financing run. And so it's a perfect example of having access to cash allows us to confidently tell the operator, yes, go make an offer on that all cash deal. Because the seller is only accepting cash deal offers. They're not accepting bank offers. So to me, this is like, this is the reason to build these policies is for this specific purpose. Yeah. And, and that, that's a great example of how that is so powerful to use for active investors too, right? Because active investors usually say, well, why would I put my money in something that's only going to earn me 5% when I can go over here and do a deal for you know 10 or 20 or 30%. But to me, if you take the time to set up these policies sooner than later, then you can use them like you know 30 years down the road, like your dad um, has this policy that has great a bunch of cash in it, then you can really start doing some creative things. So I think that's just great. And, and it 
and people don't talk about it enough, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in those, uh, those policies as well. You have a community and we, we talk a lot about shortcuts, right? So using someone else's expertise. If you are mentoring new passive investors, which I'm sure you do through your community, what are some shortcuts that you would give them so they can kind of skip ahead and don't have to start from scratch like you did? I'd probably refer them to like, you know, the common, the some of the common books that we all know about, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or um, Tom Wheelwright's, you know, Tax-Free Wealth. I mean, those things just, they just change your brain. They have the potential to change your brain. <laughs> and so those are some of the first things. And then um, after that, I guess if they want my opinion, you know, I'll give them some, I'll tell them, well, here's the things that I've researched. And here's the asset classes that I think today are some of the best things to consider. So I would be happy to share that with them. Um, I've even done some, I've even written some reports like on different topics. And so they might, they might check those out. You know, just having, you know, just being able to show people like examples, like, okay, this is what a PPM is. Like you're going to see 30 pages of the risks. Okay. The first time you see it, you're like, I'm done. I can't, I can't invest in this. I think, okay, well, just, just remember, this is all legalese. You're going to hear things, 506B, 506C, private placements, you know, distributions, waterfalls. You're going to hear all this stuff. And it's going to sound like foreign language. I guess just having experience in these deals and being able to show people what to expect before they get involved is a huge benefit for peace of mind and that kind of things. Like, Like today, I had somebody from the Michigan Investor Group who's interested in this fund I'm raising. And he's like, hey, should I invest via personally or via an LLC? And I was like, well, I'm not your attorney, I'm not your CPA, but here's the reasons why we have chosen to do some things via an LLC. But in your situation, I don't really think you need to. You're already an LP. This, it, this, this, this describes your limited partner, your limited risk in this inherently, unless you want to be anonymous. And then you're, not, then you're not even anonymous because all you got to do is go to the state and do some searches and find out who the members are. And Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. That's a lot of good um, information for people who are just starting out. And that's a lot of our community. We have some people who are experts and have done this for a while. And we have a lot of people who are just trying to get in it. And I think what you said, some of those terms, that's why we put on our website at Left Field Investors, we put a glossary up there. Because when you start talking PPM and waterfall and, and all this, it just sometimes gets too intimidating for people. And they're just like, eh, I'll go back to the stock market, you know? And, and I think so getting, helping people through that is part of why, you know, we built the community that we're building at Left Field Investors and part of why you have the Michigan Investor Group and those kind of groups, I think working together just help people get into this stuff. And, and I think that's, that's important. So I did want to ask you back to the mobile homes real quick. We try to have understand, I don't want to re-underwrite a deal when I'm investing. I'm a passive investor, not active. So I'm not going to re-underwrite everything. But mobile homes, we don't see often enough really to know how to evaluate those in our, you know, when we're talking in our group. So we usually, as we talked about, we look at the sponsor and we look at the market and then we think, okay, how can we fit this in the, in the multifamily bucket? Because that's what we're used to. So can you talk about a couple of metrics that you look at as a passive investor at a, at a, when you're looking at a mobile home park, like what are some of the things that we should be looking for in a particular deal? Okay, well, to get technical, often one of the first things I do, if I think an offering looks legitimate, and especially if it's an operator that I already know, I mean, I will just say, okay, what are the number of occupied spaces? What's the lot rent? Take the lot rent, time occupied spaces, times 12. You know, there's your annual lot rent gross revenue. 
and then I'll apply a 35% operating expense ratio. And then that gives me the net operating income, NOI. And then I cap that at like an 8%. And then I, and this is, I try to do this before I even look at their performance. Just, and then I just, I mean, 8% cap rate is a little bit high right now for, but it just, and then I say, if I'm, if I'm in the ballpark of the valuation that they're talking about going in with going, you know, going in trailing 12 months, NOI and cap rates, then I'm okay. I'll keep looking at the deal. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, that's great. That's a real quick and dirty. I do that just on, on paper. I just start just I just start writing it out, and I'm like, okay, if I think this thing is worth you know 2.4 million, and they have it under contract for between one nine and 2.7, I know that it's keep looking. Right. And then when I get past that, I mean, this is going to sound kind of quirky, but I like doing like the Walmart, the Walmart um, search, and the fast food search, or the Dollar General search, because if there's a McDonald's or a Burger King or a Walmart or a Dollar General or a Target or something within five miles of the Walmart, like that's my demographic, and and it can it can be further away than that too. But if it's within five miles of all that stuff, it's like those entities have already done all of their demographic searches and they want to be in that market. So that's another very high level, quick and dirty. So. But if you do a search and, you know, Walmart's 35 miles away and then there's no like, you know, Myers or there's no Kroger or there's no, you know, you know what I mean? I think that's a really quick and dirty way to, to sort through an opportunity also. And then, and then you know, if it's, um, if it's private well water, if it's private septic, if it's wastewater treatment plant, you know, again, you just, you better be with an operator who knows what they're doing because, um, that's just a lot more complicated than having a city water, city sewer. And then if they have like, um, if the, if the mobile home park pays for electricity or gas or water, you got to understand that too, because now your tenants don't really care, you know, how much they use. So a lot of these things, some of these are corollary to the apartment space, but I think some of them are, um, cause you're probably not going to see an apartment deal that's in a really small town. That's got a hundred doors. <laughs> yeah. But you might see a mobile home park that's got a hundred lots that could be quite rural. Well, that's that's great stuff. I love that. But you were talking about if they charge the utilities back to the park or back to the tenants. Do you look at that if they're charge if they're not charging the tenants? Do you look at that as an opportunity to increase revenue by changing that and charging the tenants, or do you look at that as as something to shy away from because they're not? You know, like you said, you can't control how much electricity or heat they're using. Yeah, it's certainly opportunity, and that's and again, when you're when you're considering an investment with a trusted operator who you've seen them do uh, submetering before or implement the rubs program before, it's it's a, that's a great value add opportunity. Okay, but and again, I'm I'm not the one doing it. I'm not the expert. I'm looking for the the operators that are doing it. And then I want to bring capital to help them, you know, buy parks. And so you want to make sure they understand what they're doing and they they know the the ropes. That's great. So we're we're getting here to the end, and um, I like to end with the last question: Is can you tell me? You said you were a podcast guy. That's how you kind of got into some of this stuff. So can you tell me a podcast that you really like, or two if you yeah. have more than one? You know, I like the Wealth Formula podcast by Buck Joffrey. I like that one a lot as an investment podcast, and then. This is not so much investment, but the All In podcast, Jason Calacanis. I like that one a lot too. Okay, great. I'll check those out. 
Well, thank you very much for being with us today. This was fantastic. I really enjoyed it and learned a lot. I appreciate you being here. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. Have a great day. I enjoyed my conversation with David, talking about mobile home parks and passive investing and, and all the rest. He's really knowledgeable and he has experience and he's willing to share with everybody. And I really, I really like that. You know, we talked about affordable housing and I thought he really nailed it with um, it's high demand and low supply. And that, that's mobile home parks. They're not building any more of them. It's hard to get them zoned. So if you're buying existing mobile home parks, you're providing affordable housing to people, quality affordable housing, and they're not building any more of it. So you're in, a, you're in a situation where there's gonna be a lot of people who want to move onto your park and there aren't a whole lot more parks around. And to be honest, they're not building affordable housing in multifamily or anywhere else. So it's really a great market and I'm glad to, uh, to be part of it. And I'm glad to be able to learn from David about it. You know, he and I have a little bit in common with networking that I, I started the Left Field Investors. He started the Michigan Investor Group. And what he found, and, and it was neat because I, I find some of the same stuff, is that it brings you opportunities. If you can create a network for yourself, it doesn't have to be you creating a community, but create a network for yourself and you'll meet people, you'll learn from people and opportunities will just come your way. So it's important if you want to be a passive investor or any kind of investor to connect yourself with as many people as possible that have ideas, that have knowledge, and you'll find, especially in real estate, that most people are willing to talk with you and help you and, and kind of show you the way. He talked also about vetting a sponsor, and again, he uses his network here, and I think this was just brilliant. So it's common sense, but what he does is when he finds a new sponsor, he reaches out to his network and says, hey, has anyone heard of this, this sponsor, and gets information from them. And that's something we're trying to do at Leftfield Investors through our Infielders Forum and some of the other things that we're doing. And I think, you know, we could we could really take a page out of David's book and learn that, hey, this is one of the best ways to find sponsors is to just ask your network, who do they like? And then when you find a new one, hey, does anyone anyone have any experience with this person? So I think that's a that's fantastic advice there. And then another place where David and I are similar is the cash value life insurance. I like how he says it's the emergency first, opportunity fund second, and he uses it to invest in passive deals. And I think that's a great way to get your money to work at two places at once, because while your money is in the life insurance policy, you're earning a return there, you can take a loan against it, and that money in the life insurance is still performing, earning a return four to 5%. And you take the money and you go and earn 8% or 10% or 20% in an investment. So it's really a great way to use the velocity of money to use the same money for two separate returns. And also, even if you're not doing that, you're earning four to five percent return on your cash. You're not getting that from a bank. You know, you're not getting that anywhere. So it's a great place just to store some cash. So I agree with him on that. It's a great strategy to use to amplify your returns and use the velocity of money. So I will definitely be connecting with David again. I will be going to his Zoom meetings of Michigan Investor Group because they're, they're a quality group and I, I learn a lot from them. So I'm glad I had the chance to talk with David. And like I said, I'll be uh, networking with him and, and communicating with him in the future.
Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.